Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, The Rule of Law and the Universality of Rights, International Law and the Death Penalty's Denial of Universal Human Rights, features University of Baltimore School of Law professor John Bessler as he premieres the release of his book, Death Penalty's Denial of Universal Human Rights, International Law, State Practice, and the Emerging Abolitionist Norm. The Advocates for Human Rights, Amy Burquist, and Minnesota Law Professor Ryan Greenwood join Professor Bessler to discuss the subject of his book, Capital Punishment and Its Impacts on Basic Human Rights. This event was recorded on November 9th, 2023. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. Join us today. I really appreciate you coming out on a Thursday afternoon. My name is Amanda Lyons. I'm the executive director of the Human Rights Center here at the law school. We are a research institute here, so really focused on research and policy advocacy. But since the beginning, the founding of the center in 1988 have always had a really dedicated teaching mission, both with students and with public events. So it's always a, a privilege to get to host conversations like this on campus. We have an invited guest in who's coming in, of course, from the University of Baltimore, but also we count Professor Bessler as part of the Minnesota law community here and part of the Human Rights Center. So it's really an honor for us to get to um, host a, really a celebration and a conversation about the latest book. Um, and, and really, since John was a visiting uh, scholar in residence at the Human Rights Center, in 2018, we kind of claim any successes that come after that time, we got to latch on to. And so for us, it's it feels natural for us to get to have this, this event today. This is the, the third book launch that we're doing for, for John. Um, we're missing out, I think, on some homemade lemonade yes. that is always referenced from one of our, our first book launches. But really, um, it's a, a great chance to hear about the book in the international human rights community. Uh, a lot of the focus in the past months, but really this whole year, have been looking at the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And there's a lot of conversations about how law and norms and practices have or have not evolved from that moment. So it's a really kind of, I think, fitting in the international conversation to look at the, the findings of, of John's books of, of how international law has evolved and should evolve. Um, and I will be brief, I'm not gonna go into a long introduction, but kind of uh, inspired by our mutual friend, Charlie Rounds, I wanted, um, especially for the students in the room, to introduce the Minnesota ties of John's story, if I can. Um, John is a Minnesotan, grew born and raised in Minnesota, um, an undergraduate degree from here at the university and a master's in fine arts and writing from Hamlin, uh, a law degree, from Indiana and uh, master's in human rights from Oxford, but also educated here in, in Minnesota, of course. John clerked here in Minnesota and practiced as a civil litigator for many years before moving into academia. Um, John's now a member of the faculty at the University of Baltimore and teaches uh, the death penalty seminar at Georgetown, which if I'm not mistaken, you really designed and taught here at Minnesota right. Law for for 12 years and have taught in different institutions. Um, John's really a leading thinker and authority on, on the death penalty, really recognized for that work. So it's a great um, privilege to get to hear from him in his work in, in this field. Um, we've asked uh, Ryan Greenwood and Amy Berkwist to join the conversation today. Um, Ryan is a member of the, the faculty here at the Law Library, the curator of the Rare Books Research Center, um, affiliated member of the Human Rights Center, uh, and I think uh, a kind of trusted friend and colleague and supporter in a lot of John's research projects. And Amy Burquist is a, a graduate of the law school, a uh, senior staff attorney with the Advocates for Human Rights here in Minneapolis, uh, leading the work in international justice and really a recognized and longtime advocate in the global movement against the, the death penalty. Um, I think just recently coming back also from Geneva on 
related advocacy. So should be a really great conversation. And thank you all for joining us today. And I will turn it over to John. Well, Amanda, it was really fun actually to spend that uh, semester here uh, working on a project. And uh, there's uh, a lot to talk about here, obviously. And I want to thank Amy for being here. And uh, Ryan, Ryan's actually have some books here from the, um, I think going all the way back to the, the 16th century, maybe. Um, and so uh, looking at torture and, and death, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, but I wanted to uh, begin by uh, talking about uh, the, the book focuses on universal human rights. I, I grew up in Mankato, which is the site of the largest mass hanging in U.S. history. So growing up, I, I heard a little bit about the, the death penalty, but frankly, it was not a topic that many people talked about uh, actually when I, in my hometown. So uh, this book is looking at all the ways in which the death penalty violates uh, universal human rights and it has a particular focus on uh, dignity, but also uh, torture. And so. Uh, so I, I put on the screen here to start and again. I, I you can see this. Uh, you know, if you you don't have to stand in front of the screen, right? If you want to stand yeah, right. on either side, okay. great. That, that'll be easier to see you can actually. Yeah, we're in a, you can post it um, wherever you're comfortable. No, this, this is no, fine. Okay. So, so if if you look at these are some of the provisions of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, right? And you know, said all human beings, right? Everyone, no one should be subjected to torture or cruel. So it includes everybody, right? That was the whole idea of it. Everybody is equal before the law. Um, so, so that's the the abstract, right? The idea that everybody has uh, rights. But now let's look at the actual uh, reality of the of the death penalty. Uh, and I thought looking at uh, Oklahoma quickly would be a, a good place to start. Uh, Julius Jones. Um, I don't know if anybody followed the Julius Jones case, uh, but he was on death row uh, for many years. Uh, he got a commutation just hours, uh, I think like four hours before um, he was about to be executed. Uh, the governor uh, decided not to. Um, uh, didn't, didn't issue any kind of pardon or anything, but but commuted the sentence. But it was literally just hours before uh, his uh, scheduled uh, execution. And there was issues of race. This is a, a quote from somebody who was involved and, again, talking about the torture, not just for Julius and, and waiting for the execution, but for the family members, the people around him who were also being subjected uh, to that kind of uncertainty uh, in that uh, arena. Uh, this is... Um, uh, words of his, his sister here, um, again, talking about uh, the, uh, the cruelty of the death penalty, but uh, again, looking back at what actually happened. Uh, and again, I think we think about the death penalty, so much of the focus is always on the offender, but we forget also that there's also family members involved. Everybody has family members, uh, mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters. So that's, I think, also part of the, the conversation we'll, we'll, we'll um, get into. Uh, Richard Glossop, also from Oklahoma, this case has been in the news a lot. Um, he's been on death row for uh, more than 25 years now. Uh, and this was a case you may have seen where the Oklahoma Attorney General Republican actually um, called for the execution to be called off, um, but uh, it was only stayed at the last minute. Um, and uh, again, uh, we look at the, uh, here's the Attorney General here, um, who basically said that there was a fundamentally unfair trial. So this is the reality of, of what we're what we're seeing. Um, and there's been multiple investigations, including one by the Reed Smith law firm that has produced multiple reports now that have called into question uh, the, the fairness of, of the conviction. And there's a lot of questions about uh, uh, Mr. Glossop, whether or not he's innocent or not. I, I know a lot about this case because I, when I did this book with Justice Breyer on the, against the death penalty, that was the, the, the case he used to, to write his dissent in 2015 uh, and so i looked at this case back then but these are new developments since then uh, that's that class versus gross decision was in uh, 2015 which approved oklahoma's lethal injection protocol and here we see uh, you know this very large report we see an uh, independent investigation separate one class was a private fair trial which the state can have confidence in the process results so again serious issues here about um, the death penalty uh, this is the, the the book and then here's the uh, the, kind of the statistics here, right? 26 years on death row. He's had uh, two trials. He's actually had nine separate uh, execution dates. Uh, he's actually ordered three last meals at this point. Um, and again, these are uh, these are not really outlier cases, um, uh, unfortunately. Uh, several inmates have come within hours or days of execution before being actually exonerated. Blossom's case. You know, he has been exonerated, but there's a lot of questions about this case. Uh, these are some cases where we see 
Um, actually, uh, I've bolded here some of the cases. Uh, Willie Manning uh, come within four hours of execution before the execution was stayed. Um, Randall Adams, who is, I think, the subject of a movie called The Thin Blue Line documentary. Uh, Clarence Lee Brandley, uh, Earl Washington. Uh, again, people that were actually exonerated. So we've come really close to uh, killing an innocent person in some of these uh, cases. Uh, Anthony Porter uh, is another uh, individual out of Illinois. Uh, came within 48 hours of being executed before uh, it was determined he was completely uh, innocent. Uh, so again, uh, these are not really outlier uh, situations. Um, and actually, um, I should mention Steve Pincus is here, who represented somebody who was exonerated from death row uh, for uh, after being on death row for many years uh, and had to fight that case. Uh, and as, as I recall, he got like a jeans jacket and like $10 after he was released. So uh, pretty, pretty uh, crazy. He came within weeks of being executed. Came within weeks of being executed. So again, not, 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 we have somebody in the room here, right? Not an outlier situation. Lawyers represent somebody. Um, so here's another example here. I just, you know, pulled some examples uh, to, to highlight uh, where we're seeing uh, coming very close uh, to being executed. Uh, this, in this case, uh, execution was uh, scheduled for a total of five times. I had a student that worked on a, an article and found that in many cases there was some people facing more than 10 uh, separate execution dates. Um, here, uh, Florida case came within 24 hours uh, of execution who also maintained his innocence. This is the case I referenced earlier. Um, yeah, came within six days of execution. Somebody else confessed uh, to the murder. Uh, this is uh, uh, just, again, somebody talking about, uh, this is not a death row inmate talking here, but talking about a death row inmate. Uh, and again, somebody who uh, faced uh, uh, multiple uh, execution dates, six execution dates uh, in Ohio. And I'll talk in a minute, I'm going to talk about a lot about death threats uh, tonight, because that's kind of one of the themes of uh, sort of an immutable characteristic of the death penalty it involves the use of death threats uh, throughout the process. Um, and we know that there's been mistakes. Uh, DNA evidence, this is a case that was actually reversed on other grounds back in 2002 from in New York. At that time, they had um, uh, 12 people had been exonerated through DNA. We now, I think, have, have roughly 195 people been exonerated in total from death row, uh, but only a small percentage of those, relative, uh, relatively speaking, of DNA. Uh, but we're actually up to um, uh, 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 almost almost 30 at this point. I'll show you that slide in a second. But here's a here's a case again, um, somebody being um, very close to execution. Um, this is uh, Kirk Bloodsworth. Kirk Bloodsworth is really the person responsible for the abolition of the death penalty in Maryland. He was an ex-Marine who was uh, wrongfully um, convicted and sentenced to death for a murder of a nine-year-old uh, girl in uh, Maryland. Uh, and uh, there's a video of him where he's kind of talking about how he can sway back and forth and touch both walls. Well, he was completely innocent of, of this uh, crime. And now it goes around the, the world actually speaking about his experience. Um, these are not mistakes. These are actually intentional um, misconduct often that occur. Um, so uh, this is talking about intentional Brady violations. So when people think about people that are exonerated, they think, well, the system just made a mistake. Uh, that's really not always the case. Sometimes it's the case, but sometimes it's the case that there's, there's a police or prosecutorial misconduct, which leads to, um, in some cases, DNA exonerations, but in other cases, just um, exonerations uh, from death row. Um, and again, here's another uh, example here uh, of people that were uh, came within hours, 15 hours uh, of execution before being uh, granted habeas relief. Um, and along with those close calls we just talk, talked about, there's also the idea of multiple um, execution dates. Um, so again, not uncommon to see more than five. Uh, and maybe Andy could talk a little bit about this too, at how the Supreme Court, you know, hears cases, but. There's lots of last minute stays always, um, and uh, they come from the state courts, uh, sometimes from the US Supreme Court. Um, but the, the court um, to date has not been willing to uh, consider what's called a lackey claim. That's the, the, the name of the case that, uh, that this claim is named after somebody who's been on death row for a long period of time. We have uh, jurisprudence in the European Court of Human Rights 
sorry, with the soaring decision that has addressed this point um, that says that you can't be on death row for a certain period of time, it becomes cruel. Um, uh, again, the Supreme Court, despite the fact that uh, people like uh, Justice Ginsburg and um, Justice Breyer, uh, uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, who was on the court, wanted to hear this, this claim, the Supreme Court has never taken that up. It involves, in my opinion, the use of psychological torture, uh, putting somebody on death row for that long a time, if it's sort of a continuous uh, death threat. Um, so in thinking about death threats, um, I, I just pulled a sampling, and that you won't be able to look at all these, but just pick a, pick a box or two to look at and, and know that death threats are ordinarily something that society does not tolerate. People get prosecuted uh, for making death threats. Um, if you see it in the news, it's, it's often associated with some sort of prosecution or conviction where somebody has threatened a public official or somebody else. Uh, those cases actually go through our own uh, criminal justice system, and they're, they're prosecuted. Um, this is a very recent case um, out of Idaho. Uh, it's actually in the, in the motion to dismiss uh, context, though so it hasn't been ruled on the merits, but the judge, federal judge in Idaho has decided that uh, this case can go forward as an Eighth Amendment claim. And essentially the claim is that the, the, the state of Idaho is scheduling executions knowing that they don't have the drugs to carry out the execution. And under those circumstances, the, the judge has said that this case can go forward. So somebody's gonna go into discovery um, this is some of the, the facts of the case. Basically, the inmate is suing the Idaho state officials because they don't, they don't have the, the, the drugs necessary to carry out the execution. Uh, European uh, countries and actually U.S. Uh, drug manufacturers have cut off supply of, of these drugs for use in executions. So he's claiming psychological torture. Um, and this is, again, the ruling of, of the judge, again, in the motion to dismiss context. So it's not in the merits, but you know, talking about um, basically uh, kind of a game of Russian roulette, uh, doesn't really know uh, the uncertainty of what's going to happen. Um, state is, is, is continuously scheduled. And we see the reference to the plausibility standard here, which is the, if you're in law school, it's the civil procedure, you know, Twombly and Iqbal are the set the plausibility standard for Rule 12 motions to dismiss. Um, a torture has been a violation of international law actually for, for decades, including uh, in the United States. Ironically, this Wilkerson case is the case where the Supreme Court approved uh, the use of a public shooting uh, in an execution. Um, in Enri Kimmler was the uh, electric chair case. That was 1890. The court also said torture was prohibited. Problem is the Supreme Court's never updated their definition of torture. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute when we get to the discussion of international law. Uh, torture is also an actionable tort. Uh, people uh, can be sued under Section 1983 uh, for involvement uh, in torture. There was a, a, some a police uh, torture cases in uh, Chicago where an officer was actually torturing people to get confession, putting like plastic bags over their uh, people's faces. Um, and like physical torture, psychological torture uh, is is actionable. So, you know, somebody holding a gun to somebody's head, threatening them. There may not be any evidence of physical injury, but there uh, could be a psychological injury there. We have some, just I pulled some, some examples here. Uh, this is some case law that kind of supports that, um, that notion, again, under Section 1983. Uh, mock executions. Uh, if you notice, if you're a lawyer, you, you know that uh, the initials here um, mean something. Uh, this is a case that Katanji Brown-Jackson decided when she was on the uh, district court. So there's been a number of cases where people have um, sued family <laughs> regimes like Syria, Iran, uh, over uh, under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. There's an exception for terrorism and torture. Uh, mock executions um, have been fit within the, the realm of, of torture. So people can recover uh, uh, money. Actually, it's hard to collect when you're suing Iran or suing uh, Syria, but nonetheless, you can get a judgment uh, in the U.S. courts. And, and she was involved in this. this is another case um, against Syria. Again, uh, humanitarian aid worker, kidnapped, tortured, executed uh, by ISIS. Here's the plaintiffs are members of the family, again, suing under this um, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And we again here see the, the torture methods that ISIS used described as death threats, um, solitary confinement, being forced to watch the physical torture and execution of others. Um, so think back to the family members. Uh, mock executions, those things all, all qualify as torture already uh, in, uh, in rulings in U.S. courts. Uh, this is another case against Iran. Um, uh, this is a special master's report. Again, we have um, some individuals here kidnapped, detained, tortured, who are U.S. citizens. 
uh, were defense contractors. Uh, and again, we have mock executions classified by the special master who is called into the case as, um, as psychological torture and described here as constant fear of imminent death. Was intended to break break the individuals, um, and then the the judge here uh, approves the uh, the special master's report. So again, another example of where it's uncontroversial that a simulated execution uh, is is considered uh, uh, torture. Uh, this is the um, uh, this is a report that the University of Texas did on the conditions on death row in Texas, uh, and again. Something to pay attention to is how long people are actually on death row. So in the, in the founding era, people would generally spend about a month to three months before they got executed after their uh, their conviction. Now it's the average about 20 years. It's been creeping up uh, over the years. Um, just about five years ago, about 15 years, but it's, it's still going up. So again, these are um, uh, people describing the conditions on death row. And again, I think we can we can separate all the conditions from the actual death threat. And my my point is the conditions may aggravate the torture, but the death threat itself uh, is is actually what uh, constitutes the torture in in my uh, judgment. But in this report, they're invoking actually the Convention Against Torture, which the U.S. has signed and, and ratified. Um, so the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948. This is an important moment, of course, in, in the law of international human rights. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was involved in the drafting of this, and actually she was able to get the committee to agree not to put a reference uh, to the death penalty uh, in the in the uh, uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Of course, this is non-binding, um, but nonetheless, it's 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 often cited. So, and it's about inalienable rights. Here's Eleanor Roosevelt here um, uh, promoting it, um, and again. We talked about before, but all human beings, right, just have rights by virtue of being human. It's not you're given rights; you just have rights by by virtue of being human. Um, and then we're gonna we have some uh, international conventions that follow uh, the Universal Declarations that uh, that those covenants are binding. And of course, this comes out of the Holocaust and the uh, the, the Nazi atrocities, um, and we all know uh, what happened in the Nazi era. Um, so the right to be free from torture and other cruel and human degrading treatment punishment. Uh, shows up not only in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but also in the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights, ICCPR, including the American Convention on Human Rights. Uh, the U.S. Is, is, uh, belongs to the, uh, we signed on to the Declaration, but not the Convention in the American context. And also the Rome Statute prohibits, for creating the International Criminal Court, uh, prohibits the use of the death penalty in international law for the worst of the worst crime, genocide, crimes against humanity, or crimes. Um, uh, right after, the year after the, um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we have the, the third Geneva Convention that deals with POWs. And this is the first time where we see um, the, uh, uh, the, the prohibition against torture include both physical or mental forms of torture. That's 1949, the same year actually that Germany in their constitution uh, abolished the death penalty uh, in, uh, in the wake of World War II. Um, so psychological injuries, um, death threats, long been seen as violating the Eighth Amendment and uh, American tort law. Uh, and so, again, you don't necessarily have to have a, a physical injury to have an Eighth Amendment claim. Uh, psychological injuries uh, can suffice. Uh, and uh, again, just citing some cases here uh, that deal with, 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 that, with that point. Um, this is an example. Seventh Circuit, mental torture is not an oxymoron, has been held or assumed in a number of prison, prisoner cases to be actual as cruel and unusual punishment. Imagine falsely informing a prisoner that he had been sentenced to death. All right, so that would be seen as being uh, torturous. Uh, again, these are redressable under uh, Section 1983, uh, which gives you the right to sue violation of your, of your constitutional rights. And we think about the tort of an intentional affliction of emotional distress, which we would uh, ordinarily think of as in the civil context. But in that context, if somebody makes a death threat, they could be sued. So not only is the death, penalty, the death threats unlawful in the criminal law, but it's also uh, tortious and torturous at the same time. Uh, here's this the provision of the, of the uh, restatement, a second of torts, which talks about outrageous conduct causing severe uh, emotional distress. Again, we could think about not just the, the inmate, but also the family members who are being subjected to the 
the, the severe emotional distress who have not done anything wrong, who are completely innocent. Um, uh, threats of violence, again, uh, or to kill can, can clearly amount to uh, this intentional infliction of emotional distress. Uh, so just some examples here of, of uh, 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 cases, actual cases, where people were, were threatened with death, where uh, this uh, intentional infliction of emotional distress concept was, uh, was put to use. Now, this is where the talk is about the rule of law. So what is the rule of law? Well, it's the idea that nobody is above the law and that everybody is subject to the same uh, laws. And so this was a definition from of the UN, actually, principle of governance, which all persons, institutions, and entities, public and private, including the state itself, are accountable to laws that are publicly promulgated, equally enforced, and independently adjudicated, and which are consistent with international human rights norms and standards. And again, we have a huge movement right now going on to um, have an international moratorium on the, the death penalty at the UN. The latest vote was 125 countries voted. Uh, U.S. did not vote for that, but the majority of countries now are, are, are saying they want a, a global moratorium on the death penalty. And so uh, the, the new book, basically the idea of the book is to reconceptualize the death penalty as torture. So not just to think of it as cruel and unusual, but actually think of it as uh, a, a torturous. And Torture is actually just the aggravated form of, uh, of uh, uh, cruel, inhuman, degrading treatment or punishment. That's what the UN Declaration of, of uh, Against Torture said in, back in 1975. Um, uh, so again, um, uh, thinking about the psychological aspect of this, if you just consider physical torture, you're only considering half the equation of, of torture. Um, and again, we already have under American law, forms of torture include mock executions, again, putting somebody Gun in somebody's you know, mouth or threatening them, a guard gratuitously threatening somebody, that uh, if there's a credible death threat, that can constitute um, uh, either torture or seen as a, a violation of the Criminal Punishments Clause. So, this is the, the book again, which has a writer's broader scope than just tortures, because it's looking at uh, uh, discrimination, racial discrimination in the system, it's looking at uh, human dignity, it's looking at the concepts of cruelty, but, but a large focus of the book is actually the, the law of torture. And why has the death penalty not been classified as torture? Um, I think this is an historical um, anomaly, actually. Um, and when Ryan uh, talks about some of these books, you'll see that in, this, in the continental civil law system, um, torture was actually part of the judicial process. Judges would authorize torture because in the civil law system, to get a conviction in a capital case, you either had to have two witnesses or you had to have a confession in open court. And because there was often not two witnesses, you needed a confession. So how did you get a confession? You tortured somebody. So they had this really bizarre system of proofs and half proofs where if the person was found like a bloody knife, then you had the right to torture them uh, to get a confession. And if they wouldn't confess, in, if they confessed in private, it was all done in secret, they then had to reconfirm their confession in open court. But if they didn't reconfirm it, then back to the back to the torture chamber, right? So, and, and so we associate um, civil law style torture with um, uh, this practice. And that's how the, the American founders thought of it. Actually, the, the English common law renounced torture. Um, they said, we don't do that in, in England. Now, the, the monarchs did torture people. Uh, they had a prerogative power, divine right of kings, but um, at least the common law did not. And so the founders thought of torture as these civil law style uh, forms of torture, uh, as, which is why one of the reasons why we don't have, we have the right to, uh, against self-incrimination. Um, uh, so the torture was used in, in throughout Europe uh, and we have um, uh, lots of examples here. Uh, so if you look at Italy, uh, France, uh, Germany, you see examples. Uh, again, uh, Ryan will be able to show you in the, in the book some of the actual illustrations they would have about how to actually torture people uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in continental Europe. This was a, is kind of a graphic uh, illustration here, drawing and quartering, which actually was actually used in England for, for uh, 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 traitors as well, treason cases. But again, somebody that uh, assassinated the king, uh, drawing and quartering literally the body would be cut up. Uh, and again, uh, this was a common practice uh, centuries ago uh, in cases. So the, the medieval uh, torture, which you know goes into the um, civil law system, is about bodily pain, um, subjecting somebody to bodily pain. So the focus is on inflicting pain in the bodies to try to get to the truth. And again, we all know that. That can result in false confessions. Um, but again, we have many forms of torture. 
water torture, waterboarding today. Uh, this is a, a strapano where somebody be hung up and then pushed aside so they dislocate their arms. Um, in the uh, United States and colonial practice, uh, they renounced torture. You see the, the, the slide here that uh, they allowed corporal punishment, but they also, uh, no man should be forced by torture to confess any crime against himself, uh, nor any other unless it be in some capital case where he is first fully convicted by clear and sufficient evidence. Um, uh, there, there were circumstances where, where torture was actually used in, in colonial America. Um, and, and these are some examples of non-lethal uh, corporal punishments that were put to use. And again, all these things are gone, and we're still using the death penalty, which is a lethal form of, of corporal punishment. So it, it really makes no sense. I refer to this as kind of the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Dr. Uh, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde approach to the Eighth Amendment, because you protect prisoners generally from, from harm, but then at the moment of death, you don't. Um, uh, this was the case, one of the cases that inspired the, uh, the English um, Prohibition against uh, cruel unusual punishments. Uh, Titus Oates was 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 put in the pillory. And he was actually um, ordered to be put in the pillory for for perjury multiple times per year, um, and to be he was also whipped. Um, and this is the provision that we essentially copied uh, into our our law. Uh, England, of course, had many capital crimes. Uh, more than two hundred. Blackstone actually talked about the melancholy truth that over one hundred and sixty crimes that uh, he wrote. His book in the 18th century were punishable by death. Uh, and then we have the um, torture, um, the judicial torture, which starts to be abolished in continental Europe. Uh, this was um, Frederick II, sometimes known as Frederick the Great, who was involved in uh, the abolition of torture uh, in Prussia. Um, we also have in Scandinavia, they move away from, from torture. But torture and capital punishment were seen in separate legal silos. So when torture was, was banned, they didn't always, at the same time, Get rid of the the uh, the death penalty. They maintained the death penalty, even though they were getting rid of torture. So this was um, Beccaria's uh, book here, um, which again uh, Brian has a copy of. That was published in 1764. Renounced uh, both torture and capital punishment, but did so in separate chapters of the book. Actually, sort of interestingly. Um, so this is his uh, famous quote here. Uh, he was from Milan. Um, and viewed it through a sort of humanistic lens. Um, uh, here's his uh, renunciation of torture in, in one chapter, chapter 16, um, called it cruel. Uh, he also calls it ethnically cruel, but he does so in a very separate uh, chapter of the, of the book. Uh, so again, he, he's troubled by the idea that the government would be using the death when it's trying to you know, put in place a law that would try to prevent, prevent death. Um, so the goal of all the work I've done on the death penalty um, is to try to get the death penalty classified under international law as torture because if we don't have a lot of executions in the United States, but countries that do are like China, Iran, um, Saudi Arabia. So if we were able to get rid of the death penalty, we could then really uh, uh, have be, be speaking on with, with more moral authority when we go overseas and talk with other um, countries. And again, a lot of this has, has to do with, with mental torture. We're already talked about the Geneva Convention. Here's the actual provision um, from 1949. Again, just dealt with prisoners of war, but I'll, I'll talk in a minute about the actual um, uh, international law. So um, again, US Supreme Court already says torture is prohibited by the Eighth Amendment. So keep that in mind. Uh, but they have not used the modern definition of torture. They're still kind of using the definition of torture back from the medieval times. In, in, in civil law countries. Uh, and here's again where, where executions are actually uh, mostly taking place. Um, so again, uh, it used to be when I went to the dentist, I would, you know, uh, there'd be a highlights magazine and they ask you to circle the things that don't that don't belong. You know, the US does not belong in this group of, 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 of countries uh, in terms of human rights um, violations. So what are the, what are the, what are the relevant provisions? This is the provision from the ICCPR I talked about earlier, which actually has a, a provision about the death penalty. It restricts the death penalty to the most serious crimes in that um, Article 6.2. There, there are some prohibitions against the death penalty for certain categories of offenders. But what I'm going to talk about is how this provision is actually just completely incompatible with the prohibition against uh, torture that exists in another section of the ICCPR. Uh, in other words, you cannot have the death penalty and then 
have an absolute prohibition against torture. So this is the prohibition. Again, no one shall be subjected to torture or cruel, inhuman, or tribute or punishment. This is the article that immediately follows the article I just showed you that said the death penalty can only be imposed to the most serious crimes. Um, since, um, you know, for, for decades, U.S. courts have said torture is a violation of international law. This is a, a, a famous case from uh, Second Circuit in 1980, which concludes that torture is prohibited by the law of, of nations. This was actually um, uh, decided after the U.N. Declaration Against Torture, and then we, U.S. later uh, ratified the Convention Against Torture itself. Um, and so in the American Convention, the, the abolition of death penalty is actually a one-way street, because once a country abolishes death penalty, the American Convention says you can't bring it back. So, um, so in, the, in America's, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not a party to this uh, uh, convention, um, but the rest of the, the, the countries that are, once they get rid of the death penalty, it's not coming back by, by virtue of international law. Um, so here's the actual Convention Against Torture. Um, and here's Article 1. Torture means any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether uh, physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a, um, uh, on a person. And then there's this lawful sanctions exception uh, at the end. It does not include pain or suffering arising only from, only from inherent incidental lawful sanctions. So I assume that was put in there, right, to protect countries' rights to use whatever they, punishments they wanted. Um, but again, if you think about what torture is, intentionally inflicted, uh, physical or mental, and it can't be that whatever you, whatever the leader you know says is a lawful punishment means it's not torturous. So think about Gaddafi or think about Kim Jong Un. If they say it's lawful, does that mean it's it's non-torturous? I don't think so. You really have to uh, think about the actual characteristics of it. And most importantly, torture has no um, exceptions. Um, so there's. Uh, not a state of war, uh, a, a, a internal political instability, public emergency, nothing can be invoked as a, as a justification for torture. You can't use what's called superior orders of a, a member of the military. You can't use that as a defense that I was told to torture somebody. That's also uh, prohibited. And so the prohibition is absolute. Um, and this is actually a Ninth Circuit case, um, which says that torture is never a lawful means of punishment. Uh, and you cannot uh, exempt torturers' acts from the Convention Against Torture's prohibition merely by authorizing them as permissible forms of punishment in domestic law. So it, this was a, um, there, there's some cases dealing with the Convention Against Torture in the immigration context, uh, most importantly. But again, um, the, the, the punishment itself cannot be torturous to qualify. If, it, if, if it's torturous, it's not going to qualify as lawful uh, punishment. Uh, this is the case where, again, dealing with the immigration context, um, we're talking about militants, whether they're going to send somebody back to another country. Um, torture cannot be inherent in or incidental to lawful sanction is never a lawful means of punishment, citing the, the Ninth Circuit case I just showed you. Um, so um, bottom line, you have to look objectively at the characteristics of the action, not how governments characterize the action. Um, there's already 90 um, countries that have signed on the second optional protocol to the um, uh, ICCPR aiming at the abolition of the death penalty. Um, and this uh, prohibits um, the, the death penalty. Um, the infliction of this is the, uh, there's, there's, a, uh, there's, there's, there's many international instruments that you know, uh, focus on human rights, obviously, but this is an important one that countries are, are, are signing on to. Uh, no one within the jurisdiction of the state party to the present protocol shall be executed. Um, and there's no reservation except um, for situations where uh, it could be applied in time of war, um, pursuant to a conviction for the, for a most serious crime of a military nature. But if you um, want this uh, reservation, you have, to, you have to make that when you sign on to it. And here's the, just a map of the countries. Uh, Europe is the is the country that is mostly um, leading the way here against the death penalty. So we have two protocols. Protocol six got rid of the death penalty in peacetime, uh, 1983, and then Protocol 13 in 2002 got rid of the death penalty in wartime. So there's no exceptions um, in in Europe anymore. Um, uh, and so when we think about the death penalty, we have to think about use of death threats. And I, I think capital charges, right, are themselves a credible death threat. They may be made on a piece of paper, but it's still a death threat. 
Um, a death sentence is just a more credible death threat because now the state has imposed it. And then as you get closer to the execution, as execution becomes more imminent, that's a, clear, a very clear threat of death. And it has all the characteristics of a mock execution, except that in some cases you actually carry it out. So it's more severe. Um, and again, State Department, courts, commentators already recognize mock executions as a form of torture. Uh, that's widely accepted. Uh, this was an example of uh, Dobskiewski was subjected to a, a mock execution, uh, later wrote uh, Crime and Punishment back in the 19th century. Um, and again, the anomaly of the death penalty is we've already gotten rid of these non-lethal corporal punishments. Um, we have um, uh, cases where uh, people have been left out in the hot sun, uh, you know, handcuffed to a pitching post for seven hours, and it, the court describes those as uh, obvious Eighth Amendment violations. So how is it that, you know, we can not uh, consider an actual execution, state sanctioned execution, be, be torture would be considered a execution. This is our, our uh, judge with the Minnesota connection here, right? Justice uh, Blackman, and back in Jackson versus Bishop, this is a case where he held that uh, lashing prisoners in Arkansas was a violation of the uh, Eighth Amendment. This is when he was on the Eighth Circuit, he issued that decision. Um, that was back in, in 1968. Uh, so, and he says here again, corporal punishment generates hate towards the, uh, towards the, I think it's the keepers who punish and the towards the system which permits it. It is degrading to the punisher and the punished alike. So violation of kind of human dignity, which is the basis of the Eighth Amendment. But again, Supreme Court still very narrowly focused on just physically at the moment of death, is there going to be excruciating physical pain? But again, that just misses half the, half the equation when you're talking about, uh, talking about torture. Um, uh, this was the case, um, in, in a state court case in, in Nebraska, State versus Mata, which uh, declared the electric chair um, uh, a violation of the, uh, the state uh, constitution, Nebraska constitution. Uh, condemned prisoners must not be tortured to death regardless of their crimes. It's the hallmark of a civilized, civilized society. We punish cruelty without practicing it. So again, the crime is always about what the offender does. Punishment is always about what we're doing in response. And again, because torture, the prohibition of torture in international law deals with official conduct, it, what the inmate did in the past does not determine what is happening in the present. So it's always the state conduct that you're evaluating to see whether that's, that's torture. Um, and of course, the crime's already occurred. Um, so again, the death penalty, um, we have that lawful sanctions exception, but again, in a lot of countries around the world, the death penalty is already unlawful. Many states in the, in the United States, the death penalty is all, already unlawful. So again, thinking about the characteristics of the, of the immutable, immutable characteristics of the death penalty, I think is the most important thing here. And to, to inflict the death penalty, you always have to use death threats to carry it out. It's, it's, you can't carry it out without charging somebody with a capital crime, without imposing a death sentence, and without having them be uh, uh, spending time on death row, where they're subject, subject to that continuous uh, death threat. Again, we have lots of countries that have gotten rid of the death penalty. I saw a story the other day about Mongolia again, uh, leader there had, uh, was faced the, the when he when, several years ago faced the option of signing commutations or signing death warrants. He chose to sign commutations, and, and, and ultimately Mongolia got rid of the death penalty. Uh, South Africa got rid of the death penalty back in the mid '90s, um, using a very similar provision actually to our U.S. Constitution. Um, um, countries are refusing to extradite people to the United States if they would face uh, the, the death penalty, um, and this actually has some echoes of. In the um, immigration law context, you have the non-refoulement principle where you can't send people back to places where they'd be tortured. Um, this kind of lines up almost exactly with that, which is considering um, the concept of torture. Um, and so if you think about universal human rights, for right to truly be universal, it has to protect not just the innocent, but also the guilty. Um, and so if, if you're going to allow a society to torture people because they've done bad things in the past, then you really don't have universal human rights. And you also don't have the rule of law, which, which makes uh, everybody subject to the same, uh, the same laws. So back in 1972, before the, before the Furman versus Georgia decision, which for a brief time got rid of the death penalty in the United States, California Supreme Court actually used the words of, of psychological uh, torture in their decision in, in talking about that and talking about it cruelty now that that decision at last california now has the largest death row in the united states about 700 people on death row but they don't really use it that there's a moratorium there so but again they they use the the language of 
of, of psychological torture. And actually, the Furman decision itself from 1972 used torture or torturous like 50 times, but they, the Supreme Court just didn't analyze whether the, the death penalty was actually torturous. So I think that was a missed, that was a missed opportunity. That wasn't a, a moment where torture was finally uh, being recognized in international law to include both mental and physical torture. So again, here we have the holding violation of the, uh, in this case, the, the California Constitution. I think this is a decision that should be should be read today. We have an international campaign against the death penalty. Uh, it's worldwide, it's global. The U.S. is kind of out of step with other countries. Uh, this is a, a, a quote I like from Camus, which I'll, I'll, I'll let you uh, take a look at um, before I move this letter. We're almost, almost done here. So just comparing what happens with a non-state actor context versus what was happening with the state um, state context, the official context when, when somebody's put to death. Um, the death penalty is very intentional. It's very deliberate. People have to plan it, have to create execution protocols. Very, very deliberate. Um, and so I view the death penalty as kind of the ultimate affront uh, to the rule of law um, and to universal human rights. Um, and the book um, essentially um, calls for the death penalty to be uh, classified under the rubric of torture through the modern definition, uh, and then also calls for a new uh, protocol uh, that would abolish the death penalty, not just in peacetime, but also in wartime because of its mutable characteristics. So that's uh, that's what I have. So thanks for listening. Hey, uh, John, do you want to, should we go to Ryan or Amy? Do, Amy, do you want to say a few words? Or uh, And by the way, um, there's I brought a letter along that I, I, uh, I from time to time, I would send some of my scholarship uh, to Supreme Court justices, and um, uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg actually had, was very gracious to send a letter back at one point to one of my books, and so that and she clearly was uh, somebody that would have liked to have seen the death penalty be abolished, but she was working in a very um, uh, inhospitable environment, I would say, for that to happen. So, so sure, I'll talk briefly, and I'm really excited to see Ryan's books too. Um, so, John, thank you so much, um, and I want, also want to thank Amanda and the Human Rights Center and Brian for being here, and I, I do want to emphasize, I work at the Advocates for Human Rights. We are on the steering committee of the World Coalition Against the Death Penalty. You saw their logo up there. I just finished my third term as a vice president of the World Coalition Against the Death Penalty, and it's so important to have John as person in academia doing this kind of really deep thinking and advocacy on these issues is really, really important. And so it's, it's really exciting. I really, it was a pleasure to read your book and I really recommend the book. There's so much to cover here and we just can't do it all justice in an hour. So if you have the chance to read the book, I really recommend that. Um, and I think the way John has described the psychological effects of the death penalty on people who are sentenced to death, especially as that execution date becomes imminent, is really important. You know, we you know we understand the concept of post-traumatic stress disorder and repeat exonerees. You know, they talk about this, and for people who get those execution dates and then they're given relief, even if they remain on death row. You know, um, when I was clerking on the Ninth Circuit. I worked for a judge who wrote a dissent from denial of rehearing on Bonk in a capital case, and Kevin Cooper was one of those people who came within hours of being executed. And one of the things they did on the Ninth Circuit at the time is they took the law clerks to San Quentin, where the execution chamber is located. They they were not having executions at the time, but one of the um, people giving the tour it talked about how physically Kevin Cooper was affected because he came within hours of execution, like his hair went white overnight. And it's just the, the trauma is really, you know, unmistakable as, as you can imagine. Um, and, but I think, you know, we, we, we want to focus on the individuals who are affected by the death sentence. But as, as John rightly said, we really need to focus on the state actors who are involved with torture because, you know, I'm not an expert in criminal law. I like basically all I know about criminal law is like what I learned, you know, across the hall at my one L law class and then whatever I absor absorbed by osmosis when I was clerking. But, but we, you know, if it's a criminal, if it's a crime, then we need to focus on the actors and so thinking about like who are the people who are actually making the threats? Is it the people who are issuing the death warrants? Is it the, the jury that's handing down the death sentence? Is it the prosecutors who are charging for capital crimes? Like who, who are the actual criminals who would charge with this act? And then we need to think about, you know, at least as best I understand, in criminal law, you need intent. So you need the intent to actually, you know, 
do the act, but the definition of torture, and you know, I should back up as an international human rights lawyer, we look at international human rights standards, and fortunately there is a definition of torture in the Convention Against Torture. John put it up on the screen, it's in Article 1 of the Convention Against Torture. Um, so you have the effect of the torture, so you have to have severe pain or suffering, mental or physical, and it has to be intentionally inflicted on a person. But then there's a little bit more to the definition. It's like the second part of the intent on the part of the government actor. So not just intentionally inflicted, but it also has to have one of these purposes. So torture has to have a purpose. And the purposes that come in that definition are to get a confession or to get information. And that's sort of the traditional judicial torture. We want to extract information from you or to punish someone. And it's sort of certainly we can think about the death penalty is a form of punishment. So if you know if that, if that could, could, could be that, or to intimidate someone or coerce someone or for any discriminatory reason. So even if it isn't, doesn't have the purpose of intimidating or getting confession or punishing, if it's for a discriminatory reason, that can also make give that intent rising to the level of torture. Um, and when we think about like death threats, um, especially you know we see that in U.S. courts where somebody's afraid to return to their home country because they've received death threats, they're at risk of being. Um, you know, being tortured in the form of they, they've received these death threats. You think about the standard death threat, the person who's threatening someone has one of these motives in mind that they want to, you know, punish someone, they want to, like, coerce someone, um, like, don't rat me out or something like that. Uh, but when when a government is, like, let's say, let's say we talk about the time where the death warrant is being issued, if issuing the death warrant is the threat, which of those intents is there? Because, and I, you know, I'd love to hear because you've done so much more thinking about this than I have. Like, if that's where we see that that death threat sort of comes alive, and maybe it's earlier in the process, which of those intents is it? Because certainly they don't intend the issuance of the death notice or the, the schedule of the execution date to itself be a punishment. It's just that the punishment is coming and here it is. So, so where do we get one of those four sort of enumerated purposes in the definition of torture? Where, where does that get triggered? So I'm just like thinking, you know, if we parse that out, where do we find one of those purposes in the threat part. And where one thing where I think you see it, um, and you know, you bring out this, I think the Pizzuto case might be that exception, where they do continuously schedule, they don't have any intention of carrying it out because they don't have the drugs, but they continue to schedule. So there you might have a really good case that yes, they're actually deliberately torturing this guy. They're, they're deliberately scheduling and rescheduling with having no intention of going forward with the execution because they can't. But if there's if we're gonna say it's per se torture you need to have it sort of more generalizable. Um, so, so I'm just not clear about that. And I also think, um, you know, there are other situations where you might have like a threat of death, but we wouldn't call it torture. Like if you think about sending soldiers off to fight in war, there's certainly a threat of death. There's intense fear and, you know, people do get killed in war and the government sends them off to do that. But the government isn't doing that like, with the intent of creating that extreme, you know, severe pain, suffering, et cetera, there, there's a, a different purpose and they would still have PTSD. You know, there's still that same amount of suffering on the part of the victim. It's just a different intent on the part of the government actor. So I'm, I, you know, like, I just read the book over the past week, so I haven't thought through all of these things, but I'd be really interested to hear about that. Um, and I also think like there might be earlier on in the process there, you might fit that part of the definition, and that's at the time of charging. Because you hear frequently that that prosecutors want to charge someone with the death penalty, with a capital crime, to facilitate a plea negotiation, at least in this country. Now, there are countries where they don't have that, so then again, you don't get universality. But if they're charging them with the purpose of getting a plea to a lesser charge with life without parole, well, that is coercion, right? You know, so they, they are threatening death to coerce into something, you know, it, it'd be like making their job easier that they don't have to prove it out at trial. But at that time, do you get that severe pain or suffering that you need as 
that other part of the definition is not clear to me that you get that there. And then you could even back it up earlier, like, are we all under a death threat? Because we have capital punishment in this country. Everyone has that threat hanging over their head, and it is coercive. It's intended to change our behavior, to deter us from doing capital crimes. The deterrence effect is, you know, that's not a strong argument. Logically, you know, the evidence doesn't bear that out, but that is the intent that we're going to have this hanging over. But we're not all in living in that extreme fear that would fit that definition of torture. So, you know, I, I thought those are just sort of interesting things that I was, you know, playing around in my mind as I was reading the book about, like, where do we get the, the purpose of the death threats at that point? And then I also think, like, there might be a different environment where we can also use this um, in that, that use this definition, and that's in the context of extrajudicial killings in the United States with uh, you know, police violence against BIPOC people. So they get pulled over, pulled over by a police officer. Are they experiencing that severe pain and anxiety? Yes. Is that essentially a death threat? Because if they're getting pulled over and there is this reputation and we know that there's a high risk of, of in some cases, someone being killed, that might amount to torture. And that could be a really interesting sort of legal argument to make from that perspective to look at those extrajudicial killings as well, because I think, I think there's a, a pretty good case to be made there. Um, I ran along a little too long, but but those are my thoughts in reading this you know, really interesting book and hearing these really interesting arguments is to just sort of look at, you know, is do you have one of those delineated purposes for that, that you need under the definition of torture? But I'll stop talking and we gotta continue on. So thanks so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. There is a, in Alabama, there's actually a case law that defines psychological torture in the non-state actor context. And the way they define it, but it seems like a sensible definition is that if you make somebody aware of their impending death and they're helpless to prevent their death, that is the definition of psychological torture. So if you apply that same definition that they're already using in Alabama, which ironically is used to, to, to aggravate a crime to make it a capital crime in Alabama, um, you would say that the death penalty is that on steroids because you're making somebody aware of their impending death and that are helpless to prevent their death. I mean, obviously the lawyer can make arguments, but it's out of their control. They're helpless to affect the, uh, to, to, to change the outcome. War is definitely a different situation, right? Where you have um, a war situation, people subjected to potential threats of death. This is uh, actually the, the last book I, I worked on with, uh, with the Human Rights Center was a book that, uh, that Ryan was, was helped do with some of the research uh, with me was the uh, idea that uh, there was an enlightenment model that any punishment that goes beyond necessity is tyrannical. That was the enlightenment motto. And so when you have somebody incarcerated, that's a much different situation than other kinds of situations where people are volunteering for perhaps to go to war to, uh, to, to fight some uh, enemy um, like, like the Nazis. Um, so I think that's something to think about. I think the other thing I would say lastly is that there is this kind of idea that you need specific intent to have torture, because it's a, it's a deliberation. But given the immutable characteristics of the death penalty, it's hard for me to conceive that people don't know that by seeking and imposing and then carrying out a death sentence, that they're not going to inflict psychological harm. I mean, it's almost innate part of the death penalty is that you're going to do that. So to ask me to say, well, I didn't really intend that, but if the consequence is always to impose psychological injury, then you have to kind of question if that's a, really a, should be a legitimate kind of defense. Um, so maybe should we have Brian say a few words about yeah, it? Please do, and then people sure. will have time to look as yeah. we close. But yeah, please let us know what you brought. Would you sure. mind, Brian? Sure, yeah, this is just to go along with a few of the slides that John showed during the presentation. And uh, they're all books that we have in the collection, so please come down and look at them afterwards. The, the first one, well, the first two are really showing judicial torture. So showing this kind of uh, gory and gruesome aspect uh, of, of legal history. Uh, this is a book by a jurist, a uh, Dutch jurist uh, named Joost Damhuder, and it's the most lavishly illustrated book of uh, basically Roman Dutch criminal law from the 16th century. And we've got this great copy of it, which is 
so it's, it's illustrated with all of the crimes that are discussed in the book are illustrated. So you can come and see all these different kind of uh, crimes. And there's also a section on criminal procedure and torture uh, is discussed. So you, you have, as John showed in the presentation, there's uh, waterboarding is a really old uh, torture. Uh, and then, so this is a picture of waterboarding that they, they've got in, in the thing. And the thing that's kind of interesting is the jurist was kind of a humanist and he's discussing all these different tortures and uh, doing a very kind of historical thing where he's talking about uh, tortures in ancient Greece and so on and so forth. And it's really grisly. It's like, and there's, <laughs> they're, they're taking some, some pleasure in it. I mean, you can say that the book by illustrating all these crimes is meant to, you know, deter folks and to show you what the crimes are, but at the same time, there's something that's you know part you know partakes of the of the character of spectacle, I suppose. And I, I think that the waterboarding section is is part of that. Um, so you're free to look at this book, all the all sorts of murder and different crimes that you can uh, examine in there. And then this one is a little bit later. It's another uh, uh, book depicting judicial torture um, under. And John discusses this in the in the book too. Uh, and it's um, a code of criminal law that comes out under the Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa. Uh, and so this is someone being stretched on the rack. Um, and I can probably stand up and show you a little bit better. But, uh, and you can apply uh, basically uh, these, these burning candles to somebody's side, uh, which is pretty wild. And this is in the 18th century, and it's during the Enlightenment, uh, which is pretty wild too. So it was over outlawed. Eight years later, so and John's written about it in the book. Basically, um, there was a jurist who convinced uh, the empress that this was not a, a good idea. It's finally, finally outlawed. Um, and then the other one, John is pretty much the, the is the leading expert on um, Cesare Beccaria, um, and we've got a few copies of Beccaria's work. He's really the guy who's most associated with um, abolition of the the death penalty. I guess admitted it in certain street cases treason but um this is this is one copy of it and, and john can say a lot more about it but um this one has got a false imprint it was published in paris but uh it they would have gone after the publisher and the author so it's anonymous at, at the time it's given a philadelphia imprint which is just impossible um so there's that and then we've got the other kind of interesting thing a little bit about the circulation of these ideas of, of beckery which john's written about um, in, in his books on Beccaria, um, this is a great, unfortunately the upper board is detached, but um, this is a, the first English uh, American translation of essay on crimes and punishments where, uh, you know, torture and, and the death penalty come in for all, all this criticism. Um, and we've got on the title page, it was owned by Francis Lightfoot Lee, which was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and it was sold by Robert Bell in Philadelphia uh, during the First Continental Congress. So this would have been available to all of the delegates and uh, some of the ideas kind of percolated through Philadelphia at that time and then in Virginia, which John has written about. Um, and it's just a kind of very interesting enlightenment context for the uh, kind of dissemination of uh, Beccaria's uh, ideas. This one is um, 1786. This is another copy that we've got of Beccaria. In later editions of the book, you get um, uh, this kind of interesting uh, frontispiece where Lady Justice is averting her face from uh, uh, a head. Uh, basically, the executioner has brought uh, the head, uh, and Lady Justice says, no, this is too much. This is not acceptable. So uh, kind of a, a reference to, to capital punishment uh, there. And the book just went through you know, a huge number of editions in all different languages, and, and just kind of like wildfire throughout Europe from its first publication. In, um, yeah, and then just the last books, just to mention quickly, we've got, uh, you know, the debate and the sort of pushback on the death penalty continued in uh, America and really along the lines of it uh, also. And Bentham and some other folks uh, on sort of utilitarian, but also sort of natural law and rights-based arguments. Um, so we've got some of those too, if you want to look at Brian had an amazing Halloween open house down at the rare books room, and there was a whole torture section. Maybe it was John's one time. Um, I just I had to pull this up as we, we close here. The, the U.S. just came for its review under the ICPR, which Amy was there advocating in, and we had a student there 
I just thought it was interesting. They close in the recommendations on the death penalty, uh, recommending to the United States that they guarantee that all methods of execution fully comply with Article 7 of the Covenant after stronger kind of calls for abolition, but, but trying to walk this line of kind of death, mixing death penalty and prohibitions of torture and cruelty. So I just think it just shows the relevance and urgency of the, the work and the, the framing that you're offering for us. So thank you all. I hope that you'll stick around and have some snacks with us and we can keep chatting, but I appreciate you all coming in. And if you'll join me in thanking John and Ryan and Amy. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.